Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Now today, how many do we have? We have 11 questions. And like I said in the community tab, I know that lots of you are, you know, frustrated because your question just never seems to get, you know, the 70 or 100 thumbs ups that the questions I choose get. And so the last two questions were just randomly picked. I literally scrolled through the comments, let it go and then picked one. So hopefully that helps some of you get your questions answered. And um, just so you guys also know, I usually post asking for your questions in the morning. I want to say I scheduled many of them for 6am on Monday and that specific standard time. And so that could give you an idea of when to pop in and post your question. And I do go through the comments below the questions that but those comments should be in relation to the question itself, not a separate question. It's just kind of a follow-up like, yeah, me too, but I'm also curious about this. Or I want to know this, but the opposite of that, you know? All of those I take into consideration and add them into my answers. Okay, without further ado, let's get into that first question. The first question is, hi, Katie. I remember in one of your videos a few years ago, you mentioned that therapists notice everything. When I'm in therapy, I get distracted because I notice myself not making eye contact, being tense, moving my hands, and smiling when I'm talking about something upsetting, etc. And I keep thinking, oh no, my therapist is probably taking note of that. What does she think about me now? How do I stop worrying about what the therapist is or isn't noticing? I thought this was a great question. And yes, therapists notice everything because it's like part of our job, right? If we aren't recognizing the fact that you seem maybe a little more queued up this session or a little more anxious, then we can't help you with that and give you, offer some tools and techniques to help you better manage, right? Or if we don't notice that you smile when you're talking about something terrible, then we can't bring it up and see why we think that's happening. Or if you've used humor in the past to like help you kind of, it's like a defense mechanism, right? If something's really difficult to talk about, then we're going to do those things. And so it's all very helpful for us to recognize and notice as much as we can so that we can help you the best that we can. Because in my experience, my patients don't always know what to even tell me about. And so the truth about like how to not get distracted by this is first, I would, I would honestly encourage you to bring this up with your therapist that this is stressing you out and another, um, and then see what comes up. It, it helps to really just chat about it, hear their side. They may say, oh, I didn't even notice that. Or, oh, it's not really that important. You know, they may like let you know that it, act, it doesn't really matter and you don't need to be hyper aware of it, which is the truth, by the way, because what's actually the best is that you are just being your authentic self. And in therapy, the cool thing is, is that you just being you to the best of your ability, being as honest and open as you can and just seeing what comes up ends up giving us the best result. Obviously, there's homework we're going to have to do in between sessions, and we're going to try things out with our therapist in session. We just have to be there, be present, and try our best. So you don't really have to worry about what comes up for you or what might you might or might not do that your therapist might notice because all of that is still helpful from a therapist's perspective, okay? So I don't know if that makes any sense, but I just want you to know that you don't really have to worry because it's actually helpful in your own treatment. Okay, now to that end, another thing that we could be doing is preparing ourselves ahead of time. Meaning before therapy, do, does our anxiety start to build? 
If so, we should bring that up with our therapist in therapy as well. But there might be some things that we can do to calm our system down. It could be, you know, petting an animal, going for a walk. Maybe we bring silly putty with us into session or maybe we, you know, massage our own hands before we go in or do some deep breathing. Whatever it is, call somebody who's supportive. Listen to a guided meditation or one of those progressive relaxation video things. Any of those things that you can do to help calm your system down help you feel better and not so on edge so that maybe when we go into therapy, we don't get so distracted by all of that. We're able to stay present. That could be beneficial too. But I really think it's part of just how you talk to yourself and your therapist about it. Because again, it, it it's actually helpful. Even if you're doing the things that you think are quote unquote wrong, like maybe, you know, moving your hands, being tense, not making eye contact, None of that's actually wrong. That's just helpful as a therapist to know where you're coming from and what you're dealing with and and that you are extra anxious, that something's bothering you. I find it interesting and helpful when I notice, especially the eye contact thing with my patients, because sometimes I'll think this one story or situation or even person like isn't that overwhelming or difficult or whatever. And then I'll notice that they struggle to make eye contact when they tell me about it. And then that gives me an opportunity to bring that up and talk with them and see if, in fact, there is more to it or maybe it's more emotionally charged than I had originally thought it was. And and so anyway, it's just a good indicator so that I can check back in with my patients to make sure that they're okay, they're doing well. Um, Yeah, I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of tricky. I know we we don't want people to notice everything we do. It's like... um, I remember when I first started filming videos, even the way that I would move my face and head and hands, I became like hyper aware because I was like, oh, people are going to, I don't know what that'll look like or what they'll think, but it makes, ended up making me feel more awkward and not as real, not really myself. And it's the same in therapy. It just kind of, it will make us look more anxious and awkward versus just being ourselves and letting, you know letting it be what it is so they can ask some follow-ups where need be. And there were some comments on this question where someone asked, how do I relax during sessions? And I talked about that a little bit. And then someone said, when it comes to eye contact, I'm curious if therapists know you're trying to look them in the eye when you talk, but you're um, actually having a hard time. And all you're thinking about is whether or not they know that looking at them in the eye is making you uncomfortable. We don't know that because it's everybody's different. Some of my patients aren't trying to look me in the eye because it's uncomfortable or because they're dissociating. And even obviously, I guess you could argue that even if we're dissociated, we could want to make eye contact. But I've never heard a patient say that. They've always just said that it was like impossible. So I don't, I would not assume, I think it's safe to say, do not assume that your therapist knows that, that you want to make eye contact because everybody is different. But this is something that you should definitely communicate to your therapist to let them know hey, you know, last session, we were talking about something really difficult. I wanted to make eye contact with you, but making eye contact with you while I talk about XYZ makes me very uncomfortable. I mean, I will tell you in my experience, my patients who are talking about anything abuse related, physical, sexual, whatever, even suicidal thoughts sometimes, they really struggle to make eye contact because there's a lot of shame and embarrassment. Even my patients with eating disorders and self-injury will we'll struggle to make eye contact when they're telling me about a relapse or something they're having difficulty with because again that shame embarrassment and guilt that kind of comes along with it and just to make sure the person who asked the question about relaxing during sessions um understands the answer that was given is it's kind of 
like to the first part where I said, you know, talk to your therapist about it and then doing things that soothe your system before and possibly during session. Like again, like the, the silly putty, the fidget toy, the breathing uh, exercise, even massaging your hand during sessions is fine. Um, I have patients who like play with their hair. Anything that is calming yet not too distracting in session is great. And so just finding those ways as well as bringing it up in therapy to maybe figure out what's triggering it. It's all, all like all that's helpful. Okay. Let's move into question number two. And that says, hi, Katie, how do I give myself permission to be okay with not being okay? I'm afraid of allowing myself to feel as I've avoided truly allowing myself to deal for a long time. I've had to be strong or fake being strong, hide the tears, and have been told by many that they are impressed with my resiliency and how well I'm handling all the stress in my life. I find myself torn between maintaining that strength while feeling like I'm actually weak inside and on the verge of total collapse. I feel like a fraud and failure always. I really am done uh, feeling my feelings and just want them to disappear. Join the club. I had a few sessions of therapy and now I have regrets, anxiety of opening up um, the can of worms. I really, really like this question. And maybe this is something I do a bigger video on, but it's interesting. So let's, I'm actually going to kind of work backwards on this one where you said that you had a few sessions of therapy and now you have regrets. What I call that, and I've talked about this um, even personally, just sharing things and making videos that are a little more personal for me. I have what I call like a vulnerability hangover. And I think Brené Brown, I would assume she's talked about this and you guys could let me know in the comments. I'm sure she has. But when we've shared and been courageous and shared something and been more open than normal, that that exposure that we feel because of that new vulnerability can be very uncomfortable. And we can immediately want to like lock up tighter than we were before. And that hangover can last for a while. But what here's the deal, and I'm just speaking from personal experience, I'd love for all of you to let me know more. But as I continue to open up, even though it's really fucking uncomfortable, and again, I want to, you know, like, like I'm a clam and I want to shut up or it's like a turtle, you want to go inside your shell, right? Even though I feel that urge, if I continue to put myself out there, I find more and more and more, I feel better because the stuffing it down doesn't actually work. And the pretending the feelings don't go away and wishing that they would just disappear, we know isn't making us feel better or we'd feel fucking amazing right now. Am I right? And so I would encourage you to continue in therapy, but now let's get through, because I went backwards kind of, so let's go back to the top. How do I give myself permission to be okay with not being okay? My hypothesis, and someone even left this in the comments below this, is that being a parentified child or having to be the strong one in a family or in a relationship can cause this or strengthen this feeling that we have to be the ones to be resilient. Like resilient, like you said, many are impressed with your resiliency, how well you've handled the stress in your life, you know. And sure, you're you're tough. Kudos to you, five gold stars. But through all that toughness, it means the minimization or complete disregard for what we're really going through. Because sure, there is a benefit to being able to weather a storm, knowing that after that storm has passed, we can fall apart and it's okay. It's like, for instance, I'll give the example of like, um, my dad passing away. I use that example a lot because it was like one of the most tumultuous times of my life. Or even when I was planning Sean and I's wedding and I was studying to take my licensing exam all at the same time. Great timing, I know. But through these tumultuous times with my dad's death, there was like a week where we had so much stuff to do. If anybody's had a family member pass away, it's like uh, all of the shit you have to like 
do with the death certificate to like cancel things and and change names on things and get like legally things have to be in order not to mention like funeral arrangements and all that shit and they want to like this is i'm on a soapbox for a little minute a little on a detour they want to nickel and dime you for fucking everything and i got super angry <laughs> at the funeral people which i know it's their business and I'm there and but you know it was my grief turned into anger so there's all this shit I had to do so my mom and I like weathered it together just fine and then after it's like fell apart like I was sleeping like 12 hours a night I was like crying during the day I remember my neck and back were completely like so tight I could barely turn my head and so I went to get a massage I, I started doing things to take care of myself once I could I white knuckled it through that week of shit of planning and you know, sending over death certificates and dealing with all the legalities of someone passing away, which our system should be better than this, but whatever. Anyway, weathered that and then fell apart. And even when it came to like planning our wedding and all of that and the stress of that, you know, got through that section of, of stress and difficulty and then fell apart and rested and took care of myself. And so now I encourage you to acknowledge and kind of I guess it's not even just recognize or acknowledge it's it's like applaud yourself for weathering the storm of of what's happened in your life and maybe your entire life okay kudos body and brain you got me through we weathered this now I have to take care of me because the thing is is your resilience you're like a stockpile is gone I would assume I'd assume your bank account of resilience is is in the red big time because we haven't taken a break and so part of how we give ourselves that permission to do that fall apart or that take care of ourselves chunk of time is by talking to ourselves about it in a nice way, showing ourselves some of the compassion and understanding that we would so easily offer to someone else. And so instead of telling yourself, well, I'm a fraud, I'm a failure, you know, I'm supposed to keep it all together. I'm the strong one. I'm supposed to be, you know, the one that people are impressed with their resilience, blah, blah, blah. All these things we talk to ourselves about in a negative, shitty way, like I should be doing better. I shouldn't have to fall apart. I shouldn't have feelings. I should just disappear, blah, blah, blah. I want you to stop that conversation or at least first recognize that it's happening. Write down some of those common phrases that you say to yourself. And then we're going to have to argue back with something that's a little bit nicer slash more balanced, aka bridge statements. We're going to use those bridge statements. And those would be things like, it is possible that, you know, I had to be strong in the past, but it's also very possible that I don't have to be as strong now. Hmm. Or I'm open to the idea that maybe it would feel better to me if I could take some time for myself to build back up that resilience that people respect so much. Hmm. Right? These aren't necessarily positive thoughts. These are just not negative thoughts. And I want you to move and start having conversations like that with the maybes and the possibilities and that I'm open to and I could try. I want you to move into that language more and more. And just notice what the conversation is with yourself about it and try to push it into a more positive space. The goal would be, honestly, it's not even the goal is not positive self-talk all the time because life throws us lemons. But most of the time, let's say at least 60%, so over half of our conversations with ourselves, I mean, I'd push for like 75, I'm not going to lie, but we'll, even if it's over 50%, if it's 51, I want that conversation to just not be shit talking. I'd like it to be more in support 
of ourselves, showing ourselves compassion as we work through something, right? Because you can be, we all have strength, but with that strength comes sometime that fall apart time. It comes with the need to recoup, take care, feel what we've been stuffing. And I really think therapy is going to be great for you. Yes, the vulnerability hangovers will continue for a while, but just trust me when I tell you that they do go away, things do get better. Getting validation and support from someone will help you, like help, I guess, not cure that hangover, but help it move through more quickly. And so the therapist can do that, let them know that you you feel that way. Um, you know, open up a can of worms. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, even my friends, as well as, um, you know, viewers, people in our community, is that they worry if they even start talking about something like the whole ball of yarn is going to come undone, like they're going to be, their world is going to fall apart, they're going to fall into a collapse or like, uh, you know, have a complete crisis. And I'm here to tell you that it always feels that way. But no therapist who is good at their job is going to have you dump everything out at once. It's more of a slow process getting to know one another, you get to go at a pace that feels good and receive support and validation along the way, so that you slowly become okay with not being okay, knowing and hoping and seeing that your goals in therapy out in the future are to feel better. It doesn't mean we have to be okay all the time, but we can have more tools, more resources so that we can, uh, for the majority of days, feel better, right? Um, and there was a comment added on to this question, how do I stop feeling guilty for asking help? And again, I know you guys hate this, but it's that conversation we have with ourselves. You're shit talking your need for support. You're potentially minimizing or invalidating just how bad it feels. I can't tell you how often I have patients come in that I'm especially eating disorder related where I'm like, wow, I think, I think you need inpatient, like meaning you need to go to the hospital or you need to go into a treatment center full time. And they're like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I've been trying to think about getting a therapy for like two years. It can take us for fucking ever because in our head we keep saying, oh, I just don't need it. I don't need it. I don't know how many times I have to tell people you can get help anytime. If you're having a bad few weeks and you're like, man, I'd really like to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. Therapy does not have to be long term, nor does it have to be short term. I don't, there's no judgments around how long we need to go. We just need to get that support as soon as possible because just like anything, like going to the doctor for a cold, if I got into the doctor quickly when I had like maybe just a little cough, felt like short of breath or congested, they could give me an antibiotic or some form of treatment and I could feel better. But I could also try to weather that and wait it out. And if my body doesn't fight it, it could turn into pneumonia. And then we're talking about a whole nother thing. I might have to be hospitalized and on fluids and it might be hard for me to breathe. Might have to put me on a ventilator. I don't know, right? We just don't want to wait. And our mental health is no different than our physical health. The sooner we can go in for those, you know, mental aches and pains, the sooner we'll start feeling better. And so I really think that the that guilt is just based on the conversation with, that you're having with yourself and that invalidation and minimization of what's really going on. So pay attention to what you're saying and let's use some of those bridge statements. I have a video about bridge statements. If you want to watch it, just go over to YouTube, put in Katie Morton bridge statements. It'll pop up. Um, but check that out. I think that it will, we got to use those. It'll help us feel better. Trust me. Those really work. Okay. Let's move into question number three. It says, Hi, Katie. I find myself feeling really bad and crying in between sessions, but I cannot cry in front of my therapist, even though I really want to. It's like I'm blocking my emotions out in therapy, but why? It's so frustrating. Now, 
couple of things came to mind when I read this question. The first is if we're feeling really, really bad in between sessions and maybe we don't have enough uh, skills or resources to help us kind of weather that time, I would let your therapist know because maybe we need either some supplemental support like a group, like online group therapy, or we need to see our therapist more often. Or maybe instead of just one 50-minute session, we go like a session and a half. Those are all things that I would like you to consider if we think that more therapy could assist with this. Because a lot of times my patients will tell me they feel really bad in between sessions, and that means they need more treatment. Other times, you know, it's just us trying to cope in between and feeling more emotional when we're not with someone else, okay? So that's kind of moving into the second part of this, which it could be happening because... In being in front of someone else, whether it's a therapist or even a friend or family member, is a little uncomfortable. And a lot of us do not like to cry in front of other people. And that can be for quite a few reasons. Now here, my first and the most common that I hear it from you, from myself, from people in my life, is that we don't want to put anybody else out. By crying in front of someone else, what we're going to elicit is this response of, oh my God, I'm so sorry, are you okay? Or asking how they can better assist or offering more resources, right? We're going to get a response from them. And frankly, we don't think we're worth it and we don't want that. And we don't like to ask other people for support or help. So I don't know, maybe that's it. Another could be the fact that we have a little anxiety in session still. Anxiety can snuff out crying pretty quickly, at least with my patients. They talk about all the time how if they feel overwhelmed or anxious, it can make it harder to cry. For some people, it makes it easier to cry. I'm just giving you some options. Um, it could be dissociation. My patients who feel overwhelmed in session and struggle with to just, like stay present, so they're kind of being pulled away a little bit at a time, aren't present enough to even, you know, emote in session. That can be really difficult. If it, for those of you who don't understand dissociation or how it can feel, for a lot of my patients and viewers alike, talk about how you feel like just you're not really there, so you can't express yourself or be emotional in the way that maybe you need to. So that could be causing it. You can see how there's a lot of different reasons. And then another one, which doesn't, I don't know if it's what's happening here, um, because you said you really want to cry. So in front of your therapist, so I'd assume there's a good connection there and you like your therapist. But for a lot of people, we can't cry in front of a therapist because we don't just don't feel like they get us or that we don't really, not that we don't like them, but maybe it's just not a good connection. Maybe we should consider looking in to see someone else that's a better fit. There's all of those reasons. And so just consider that. Consider those different reasons maybe pick a couple that work for you and maybe the things that you think it's cause like it's causing it um and dig into that either with your therapist or on your own preferably both because I really my guess I, because it's the most common is that I don't want someone to feel like they have to take care of me be responsible for me and so my question to you or my journal prompt for you would be what would it mean if someone cared and took care of me and was affected by my upset. Hmm. And then I'd take it even a step further after you've written about that. I would encourage you to write like, you know, um, when was the last time that someone was affected by my upset? Do I remember? Has it ever happened before? Hmm. How did that go if there's a time? You know, what'd that feel like? Or is it something we've been longing for forever? So it feels very scary, overwhelming. I don't know. Just some thoughts of mine. But you let me know, you know, what you find out, and hopefully that kind of helps get that ball rolling, okay? Moving into question number four. It says, hi, Katie. 
I'm going to try again and hope this gets answered this week. Whoop, whoop, it did. Persistence pays off, you guys. Keep asking your questions. My question is, how do I heal, quote unquote heal, from anxious attachment? My anxiety surrounding romantic relationships is really making it hard for me to even go on one date without my brain and body turning into a big anxious event where I'm worried the person will leave me. I can't even think about if I care about them or want to see them again because I get so worried that they won't like me or they'll leave me. Will I find someone who doesn't elicit these worries or fears? Or are all my romantic relationships destined to be anxiety-inducing experiences for me? And someone else said, I'm also scared to date because I'm, um, I am already worried about what will happen when we break up. How do I stop myself from worrying about the end of something before it has even begun? These are great questions and a couple of things. First of all, I want to highlight that it's not one or the other. It's not finding someone who doesn't elicit these worries or fears or all of your romantic relationships are destined to be anxiety. It's actually neither of those. Putting all of the blame or emphasis on the other person that I'll find someone who doesn't elicit this in me. Mm -mm. We're going about this from the wrong way. So the way that we need to go about this is what is it? about romantic relationships that stir this up in me. It's being curious about that anxious attachment that you're talking about. I assume you have that name and have placed it on yourself because you've been in therapy and you've been working on it. So I'm really curious about it. Let's dig into that. What, uh, you know, if I do, let's just, I like to play the what if game or the play it out in cognitive behavioral therapy, we call it play it out to the end. So let's play some of these thoughts or worries out to the end. Okay, let's say we get into a relationship with someone. Okay, let's say it's going well. Hmm. Let's say we invest in it emotionally. You know, it's always like we invest in things emotionally, physically, financially, right? It's a relationship. Boom. Okay, so that it's okay. Still going. Okay, let's say then maybe we run into some upsets and issues. And then let's say either we want to leave them or they want to leave us. But because it's anxious attachment, let's say they want to leave us and they break up. What? are we so worried is going to happen? How would we feel about that? It sounds like it's very overwhelming, but I just don't want you to go into it saying I would feel terrible or overwhelming. What do you think would happen? Let's play this out. Are we going to get so upset we can't get out of bed and we lose our jobs and our world crumbles around us? Okay. Have we ever lost a relationship in the past? How did it wipe us out like that then? You know, let's just be curious. Let's play things out. Let's ask questions and get real answers versus focusing on the fact that we, it's hard for us to go, you know, we're focusing just kind of on this one part of or one symptom of our anxious attachment, meaning romantic relationships get it going on a date and not freaking out. We need to figure out where it's coming from and what all of these worries, like what's the story we've put together? Because once we have those kinds of questions answered and that story or all those options, like the worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario, I like that game too. But once we have all of that mapped out, then, and I'm sure you see this coming, we check our facts. Okay. Do we have anything to support the fact that we know we're going to fall in love and, you know, put in a lot of time, energy into the relationship and then have them break up with us? Of course we don't. We can't tell the future. Magic eight ball doesn't help, right? So we don't have that information. And also, um, you know, we don't have any information on the same that it's going to turn out perfectly and we'll never break up with someone. Okay, so the most likely scenario is that we'll have a few breakups and we, and then we'll find someone that's a better fit, right? Or we'll have longer term relationships and maybe we'd want to break up. Okay, you know, we have to go through these scenarios, check our facts, 
consider what the outcomes could be and how we would cope with it. And so I think one of the key coping skills, or I guess actually a tool that you could use to better manage this anxious feeling and this sense of overwhelm is what we call in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, emotion regulation skills. And one of the basic like foundational skills within that kind of pillar of DBT is what I call like preventative measures or things that we do so that we're not as emotionally vulnerable in general. And those are things like I've talked about in the past, like ABCs, please, or HALT. If you guys don't know, DBT loves an acronym. What those really mean is we should be taking our medication every day, what's prescribed to us at the time and the days that we're supposed to. We should be sleeping enough, trying to drink enough water, showering regularly, eating regularly. It's kind of what we call, you know, quote unquote basic, doesn't mean they're easy, but important things that we have to do to take care of ourselves. And so making sure that we do those things will make us less vulnerable to this upset that we can feel when we consider dating and we consider attaching to someone. But here comes, so that's kind of like what I I think could help a lot of us when we feel a sense of overwhelm in our life. Those basic needs are super key. But when it comes to actually healing from anxious attachment, that work has to happen in therapy. But I want you to know that it, it can work and it can happen for you. So those of us who have anxious attachment means that our parents weren't really reliably there or whoever our caregiver was, whoever we counted on to take care of our emotional needs as well as our basic you know, physical needs, they weren't there reliably. And so we can feel very anxious like, oh, hey, somebody may not come back or they may not like us or they may not care about us. And we can feel uh, that, that anxiousness, right? And so in order to not have that perpetual, like continue, I guess, into the rest of our life, we're going to have to heal that trauma because I think of attachments and having, you know, bad reactions when we we're children with our caregivers. Those are things that those are traumas and things that we're going to have to heal from. And I know a lot of you are like, well, I don't even remember what happened when I was that young and I don't really know where it comes from. I'm not really sure. That's okay. But it can really help you still to talk about what you do remember consider the relationships that you have with your parents and potentially because even if our parents were good on paper that doesn't mean that they gave us everything we needed emotionally right I've talked about uh, parents who are emotionally neglectful or emotionally unavailable that that may not be so what's the word it might not be so obvious that that's a trauma even though it is and so considering our emotional needs and if they were there for us in the way we needed can can maybe reveal some things for us and then it's that inner child work I have videos about inner child work if you want to dig into them you can just hop on YouTube and look those up but you could write letters to your younger self offer support and kindness to yourself now that you wanted back then and and I know a lot of people want to take someone else and put them in that hole of our like that that void that we felt from our caregiver and wanting to place someone in it But it's that action that is causing this anxious response because the last person who was supposed to be our caretaker, right, our parent or whoever was, wasn't there. And so it triggers that. And the only way to overcome it and heal is if we give it to ourselves and heal that wound ourselves. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's clear. I have tons of videos about inner child work, emotional neglect emotionally unavailable parents, you can look all those up and hopefully that will just help guide, but feel free to ask follow-up questions. And I think that 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 will help both, not only the people who commented saying, you know, scared to date, because how can I stop worrying, uh, worrying about the end before something's even begun, as well as the person who, you know, how can I even start dating? I'm so worried the person will leave me. 
I promise you doing that work on yourself prior to entering a relationship will make all the difference. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And that question is, Hey, Katie, I'm super attached to my therapist at the moment, and I've always had such a hard time between sessions because I miss her so much. I've talked to her about my attachment to her, and we are working on it in therapy, but I would love to know some ways to cope with separation anxiety. My current coping mechanisms involve looking at photos and videos of her and just overall being super stocky. It's so hard to be away from her. How do I deal? Thanks and love from Melbourne. And there was a comment that I'll get into after kind of actually two comments, um, and those are kind of on us. There's, they're similar, but a little bit different. So let's answer this first one first. Now, when it comes to attachment to a therapist, I just want you all to know that it's very common. So often we've never had anybody in our life that listened, supported and guided us in a helpful and loving way. And kind of going back to the question previous, the question number four about like anxious attachment for those of us who didn't have a good caregiver or someone who wasn't really there for us, maybe was emotionally neglectful. We can latch on to a therapist because they've offered us that one thing that we really need. And I told you how enticing it is for us to want to take someone else and put them into that void that we feel inside of ourselves. But again, it doesn't heal us. We have to do it for ourselves. And that's why working on it in therapy like this person is talking about is so important. So just wanted to put that out there. But and someone in the comments also mentioned having a transitional object. And those can be really beneficial. I've only offered transitional objects to a few of my patients when they were leaving therapy and like graduating from therapy because it was kind of a way to remember all the work that we've done together. And transitional objects can be anything. I wish I had something around here, but my mom doesn't have it. Like maybe something over there, but I'm not going to dig into her china cabinet. But um, one of my teachers, for instance, that talked to us about transitional objects gave us one and I still have it on my desk and it's a little black, just a plastic toy pony, very small, like maybe a half an inch tall and an inch wide, just a little thing. Um, I've given patients like silly putty that I purchased for the office. I'll let them take one of them with them or, um, you know, an object in my office that they want, I'll let them take that or I'll bring something in to give to them. It's something small that you can carry with you and take it with you. And it, it just is a good reminder, again, of the work you've done in therapy or in between sessions that can offer some kind of reprieve or some kind of connection. And so there, that is a great uh, a great option, a great idea. So that could be something that you do. But a lot of it, I really, part of me wants to push back against leaning into this attachment and having, you know, these transitional objects. Yes, those can help a little bit, but I really would like you to figure out with your therapist some ways that you can self-soothe within session because what it feels like to me and I could be wrong but it feels like we're our inner child our inner toddler is throwing a tantrum in between sessions and is feeling very overwhelmed this can lead to us over texting emailing or just like you said obsessing almost super stocky about them and I want you instead to put your energy into finding ways maybe it's even just journaling about why you miss them and what comes up for you. I would prefer that to the watching videos, listening to audio messages and that kind of thing. Because again, what we're trying to do is instead of going towards that very attractive, uh, like putting the therapist into that void, right? That's such an attractive thing we want to do. It's like an action that we feel, oh, it could be so good. I'm going to, no, I don't want you to try to do that. I want instead for us to be curious about that and what's coming up for us. And even as we want to do that, I want you to push back and consider what could I do instead that might be more helpful. I know it's going to be hard. 
it, you're not you're not going to be able to do that every time, but pushing back against it, not allowing our brain to continue to pull our therapist into that soothing spot. It's almost like we're that's why I said it's our inner child because it's almost like we're a child, a baby in a that's swaddled in a uh, you know in a crib, and we're expecting our therapist to come and soothe us. Instead, I want you to figure out how to soothe yourself. You know, and I know that may be a bad analogy for some of us, but that's kind of what's happening. And so ways that we can soothe are journaling are even doing that shake out, right? It regulates our nervous system. We shake from head to toe. It could be a weighted blanket. Maybe it's crying about what we wished our other caregivers gave us. Maybe it's uh, jotting down what it is our therapist offers that we find so soothing and attractive to us, right? You know, it being curious about this instead of just leaning into it will be so much more helpful and beneficial and allow us to not only soothe that inner child, but be able to do it on our own without wanting to just pull that other person in. And that will actually end up keeping us safer and help us feel better more quickly. And I know it's hard work, um, but you just have to keep trying and, you know, mention this to your therapist, see what they think, because again, I'm not your therapist, but I think that's could really be beneficial. And if you check out my videos about inner child work, I think there'll be some, you know, key components and things in there that could be helpful too. But again, soothing your system on your own, finding ways to calm that anxiety. Oh, it'll make you feel so much better. Okay, so the comments attached to this question are, I struggle to know if I need more help and more frequent sessions or if I'm just too attached. So someone left a comment about not knowing, you know, if maybe they just aren't doing well between sessions, right? Sometimes we do need a higher level of care and we need to see our therapist instead of once a week, twice a week, but they're not sure if that's due to attachment. So here's the question. And here, if we're honest with ourselves, the answer will reveal itself. Do we find the issues that we are dealing with in therapy coming up so much so in between sessions that the amount of time we have in a session a week just isn't enough? Can we not talk through what we need to talk through that week in that session? And do we find ourselves feeling worse and worse and worse and worse as the weeks go on? Does that make sense? Or, so if that's true, you just need more sessions. Or... Do we find ourselves missing our therapist and just wanting to see them more? That's the difference. And I know that it might be hard for you to tease out, but just maybe rewind that little portion back and listen again, pause and be honest with yourself because the true answer will reveal itself and there's no right or wrong answer, but that will just help you know whether you need more help or it's attachment based. And then another question on top of this question was, I'm wondering about the flip side of a therapist's attachment to a client. And they said, how do you handle therapist attachment? And they went on to talk about how their therapist is, you know, moving into another state and getting licensed there, but they're going to continue seeing them over telehealth. And they were curious if it was because their therapist was attached. Now, I can't speak for your therapist, but I can speak for myself that our attachment to our patients is, is not what you would maybe think us feeling attached to a patient is actually very unhealthy and can be detrimental to the therapeutic relationship because therapy is about you. It's not about me. And it's not actually about this. It is our connections helpful. I don't want you to think it's not about that connection, but I shouldn't have an attachment to you because that could impede the work that we do together. Because if I'm wanting to keep you around, if I'm wanting to continue seeing you then that means that the, the, our work together is actually about me. 
And that's ass backwards, right? It should be all about you. I should be actually encouraging you. The goal of therapy, if you forgot, is to feel better so much so that you don't need it, right? Just like we think about any kind of treatment. If I'm getting treatment for a broken leg, the goal is for my leg to heal and for me to be able to walk on it. And sure, maybe I have to come back for some checkups, but I shouldn't need it as much as I did at the beginning. Therapy is no different. The goal is actually for us to not need the therapy, right? To heal those past wounds. It can take however long it needs to take, but that's the end goal, right? And so if I'm attached to you, that's not going to work. And that's why therapists, I personally, I, we, I hope we all hold ourselves to a higher standard, which is why um, not only do I consult with other you know, mental health professionals as needed when I feel like maybe a, a client or situation is a little outside of my scope of practice or maybe not within my specialty, right? Or I want to get gain some more insight. It's also why I, you know, in my own therapy, talk to other people about it, get other support um, and really keep that in check because you're coming to me to get help and to feel better. I don't need to throw my own shit into it because if I'm attaching to my patients, something's going on with me and that means I need to have my own therapy. So that's, that's my, those are my thoughts on that. And let me know if you have any more questions about that. I hadn't thought about that at all. And I don't think I've talked about it that much, maybe on my ethics and therapy video I have, but anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Great question. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And that question says, Hey Katie, I feel so stuck. During the day, I try to maintain this unachievable image that I'm always happy and bubbly. Oh, that sounds exhausting. In my head, I get so critical when I don't meet this image. I feel like I'm having um, to step back from so much because I'm wearing myself out. Yeah, we're only human, right? Any small mistake that I make at work makes me so anxious that I don't hear anything and nothing seems real. Maybe dissociation. I've cut back work hours, but then I impulsively fill my time with more commitments. I hate being alone with no distractions, and this is why when my um, and this is when my anxiety is worse. Sometimes it feels like my head will explode. I feel disconnected from everything around me. It's so hard to explain to those around me as they see me, um, as they see is how successful I am in my work. But I feel like it's all just going to come crashing down. Any advice for combating my perfectionistic thoughts and staying grounded when my anxiety makes a jump from two to eight? Thank you from Australia for all that you do. Ooh, we have two Australia to Melbourne and now from Australia as a whole. Love you guys. Love visiting there. Okay. This is a great question. And there's a couple, I have a couple of thoughts. So a lot of times when we want to maintain like a, again, I think I talked about this previously, but maybe not. Maybe it's a later, um, a later question. I'm forgetting because I read them ahead of time, but, um, Maintaining an unachievable image of being happy and bubbly and being perfectionistic, it's never right. It's like we can't attain it. It's, it we can't continue to attain it. It's something we can sh attain short, like short term, but long term, it's, it's just not sustainable and it's too exhausting. But I think it, a lot of times it comes out of us being a parentified child. And I know that you're like, Katie, I don't even see the connection between that. But when, when from a young age, we feel like we have to be super responsible and we have to, we're the only one that's going to get things done or take care of the people in our family, we can start to feel like we have to keep it all together. We have to be perfect so that we don't upset anybody else and everybody else is able to live their life and be okay. We can put a lot of extra uh, pressure on ourselves to make everything happen. And I think that that can sometimes 
later in life lead to situations like this. And I just want to put it out there because if you find that being, you know, the case with you, then you can check out my videos on being the parentified child and what that can mean. And that also gives you some terms to look up when you're, you know, maybe if you want to get into a workbook or read a book or help yourself in other ways and find other resources that can be helpful then too. Um, okay, so really <laughs> the, so the advice for combating this, it's kind of like I've talked about this in the past on other live streams and even made a reference to it in my book that'll come out this September is that going on a bear hunt uh, song where it's like going on a bear hunt, can't go around it, can't go over it. You know, you got to go through it is how it ends. And you got to go through this. And what I mean by that is I know you hate being alone with no distractions, but that's exactly what you need. And it's going to be uncomfortable at first, but all of those feelings, all of that upset, all of the overwhelm, all of life that you've been avoiding by trying to keep busy and being perfect and running and doing everything and being everything to everyone else, all of that has been stuffed deep down. And that is what is causing us to feel burnt out. And I have a whole series on burnout. If you want to learn about like why it, you know, what happens and what happens in our brain to cause it, there's a lot to it. But when we've been burned out for a long time, I just want you to know that your limbic system, which houses your amygdala and what I call like the fire alarm of your brain is enlarged and overactive. And so I'd assume that you are very quick to feel impulsive, upset, angry, all of that because you're just maxed out. And so what could really be beneficial for you is number one, getting into therapy if you're not already. I'm reading through the question again to make sure I didn't miss that, but I don't see in here that you're seeing a therapist. Please, if you can, uh, I know in Australia, a lot of times you have to get on a wait list, get on that wait list, let's do it. So do that and be alone. Maybe start journaling. I have a journal club on YouTube. You can join my memberships. It's just $5 a month. And twice a week, I offer a journal prompt. Sometimes they're kind of lighthearted and more creative based. And other times they're more therapeutic just to kind of balance us out, right? Because sometimes it's just good to write things, but other times you really need to get into it. And so journaling out about what's going on and how you're feeling, letting yourself cry and in some ways feel like you're falling apart, I will actually help you build yourself back. And I know that that seems like the opposite, like I'm asked backwards, but I'm not. I promise you that what feels uncomfortable to you right now is actually what you need. And so if you give yourself some time to be alone with no distractions, to feel it, to journal, um, and then shaking it out, right? Because you said your anxiety kind of builds at that point. It's because it's all that stuff you've been stuffing down is coming out. So we need to shake our body. We need to journal about it. Maybe there's some impulse logs you can do. Um, I have, I've linked it out before, but it's like selfinjury.com. And you can just Google selfinjury.com impulse logs and it'll come up. You can find them. They even have a video telling you how to use them. They're wonderful. I love those people over there. Check those things out because... I know, I know this is hard, but you got to go through it. And then those thoughts, you said the combating the perfectionist thoughts. One of, I mean, again, it's, I've talked about this in the other questions is like recognizing the thoughts and, and part of that journaling will be just noting what thoughts you're having. What are the automatic thoughts? I'm so stupid. I'm so lazy. I'm so worthless. What is it? Are that maybe some of them positive? I hope so. But usually most of them are kind of negative. And how can we turn them into more bridge statements or more balanced thoughts, something along the lines of it's possible that I'm not as productive as I once was, but man, I was feeling bad then. So I hope 
or I, I'm open to the hope that it could get better if I give myself a break or I don't know. I know that's a very long winded response, but you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, it's possible that taking a break is better for me in the long run, or I'm open to the idea that I can't do everything perfectly all the time. And maybe it's hard, but maybe, right? And so just kind of changing those thoughts into a more balanced place will help you feel better. Um, but one thing at a time, I know it's overwhelming and getting some extra support and getting a therapist on board will really, really help. Let's move on to question number seven. And that question is, hi, Katie, I almost committed suicide this winter out of pure impulsivity. My therapist was very concerned. I wasn't. I'm better now and don't think about suicide all the time. However, every now and then those thoughts come back. I thought I was getting better. I do feel better. However, does having recurring thoughts of suicide, like just popping up every now and then, or the wish of self-harming again, though the urge isn't that strong right now, mean that things are getting worse again. What can I do? Thanks for your help. Now, a lot of times I have patients who have either told me of a past attempt um, at taking their life out of impulsivity, and I think that's very common. I just want to put that out there. And that's why impulse logs and safety plans and all the things I've talked about with regard to suicidal thoughts are so important because it's that that quick urge, that impulsive thought, that, I don't know, that internal, ugh, we just do something, right? We act very impulsively and don't think it through. It's that that really puts us in danger and can really hurt us. And so that's why we have all those things in place ahead of time. And if you are out there and you are struggling with active thoughts of suicide, meaning that you have a plan and the means and you know you just haven't quite done it but you think you might please reach out please speak up there's everything from the crisis text line at 741741 um there's suicide hotlines in your area you can always take yourself to the hospital and just tell them you're you're feeling very suicidal you can even um if you're part of the lgbtq plus community the trevor project has 24 7 support online there's a lot of ways and resources you know ways to get support i know if you're in the uk there's samaritans and they have you know, 24 seven chat support as well. So reach out and speak up. I promise you it can get better. Now, when it comes to this question, the reason these thoughts are coming back up. So first of all, I want everyone to know that even any kind of thing that we've had in our past, like suicidal thoughts, uh, self-injury urges, eating disorder urges, uh, even flashbacks sometimes. If things are getting stressful for us or overwhelming, or maybe we're just not using our coping skills as often, or maybe doing the things that helped us to get to this place where we feel better, we can start to have them come up with more frequency. Now that doesn't mean that things are getting terrible. It just means that we probably need to increase a little bit more of our work and therapy, whether that's like the homework we used to do, or that's talking more honestly in our sessions, or maybe we need to increase our sessions for a short period of time. We just kind of need to up our support because that's why they're happening again. Now, they're not as bad as it used to be, thank God. And we don't want to wait until they get there because it's kind of like, um, I don't know if this resonates with anybody else, but when I was a kid, before I got my tonsils out, I used to get strep throat all the time. And to this day, even though I have my tonsils out and I haven't had strep throat in quite a while, probably actually a really long time now, if you think about it, I will catch a cold and my throat will hurt first because it's like that weak spot in my body that's always been the one to get the most sick. Does that make sense? And so when it comes to our mental health, we have those weak spots, right? If we had um, suicidal thoughts for a long time, 
that's the way it gets in. Or if it's self-injury thoughts, oh, it tries to come through that way. Or if we used to have an eating disorder, I talked with my good friend, Lindsay Sterling years ago about hers. And she talked about how when things got really stressful, she would, um, it would, the thoughts would come back. And she was like, it's like my eating disorder thoughts had like put on a different outfit and a different wig, but I knew who they were, you know, they tried to change, but I still knew who they were. And so it's kind of that where it'll try to come back. It'll try to, um, show itself in a new way or creep back into our life because it's an old coping skill that used to work. doesn't work anymore. And we know that, but all that tells us is that we just kind of need to increase those coping skills, increase our tools, whatever thing, whatever homework or, um, you know, things that our therapist offered that were helpful and pushed us out of that and got us to where we are now. We might have to do those a little bit again. That's okay. It doesn't mean all is lost. I'm glad that you're recognizing it for what it is and catching it early on because we can get us back to feeling better more quickly than we did the last time this happened. And so just keeping an eye on these things for whatever, for anybody out there who's struggling with any kind of urges or thoughts like this, it's just helpful information to let us know that we need to start doing that work again. And it's kind of just part of life, unfortunately. Yes, we can be completely in, I know a lot of people ask, can you fully recover from, you know, suicidal thoughts, self-injury, eating disorders? And the answer is yes. However, when things get really, really stressful, the thoughts can kind of come back, but they're very easy to dismiss. Like the person who asked this question said, but the urge isn't that strong right now. So it's like, it's there, but it's not as strong. That's the time when we need to kind of take action to take care of ourselves, do some of the things that helped us before so that we're not waiting until that urge does get stronger. Um, So yes, you can recover completely. We just have to be aware, which sounds like this person is very aware. Okay, let's move into question number eight. And that is, hi, Katie, how should I respond to my therapist asking, quote unquote, how would you like me to accompany you right now? I know this is about my need in the present moment. Sometimes I want a hug, but I'm too embarrassed to say it aloud. But what can he do apart from being there and listening to me? First of all, when I read this, I was like, God damn, why do therapists have to say things so strangely? Like, how would you like me to accompany you, right? Why do we say stuff like that? I know what your therapist means, but shit, man, it's complicated and it's confusing and it's not very clear. I would prefer a therapist to say something like, how could I best support you right now? Because that's really the question. What can I do to best support you? And so you are right. This is my need in the present moment. Yes. I just think it's a weird way to ask us how to put that out there. Cause I'm like, Ugh, it's, I, I know that I'm guilty of things too. And I say things that are like, so therapisty. It's like, Ugh, and it doesn't make any sense. But this one I thought was very therapisty and didn't make sense. So that's what they're asking. And I'd like that you recognize that sometimes you want a hug, but you're too embarrassed to say it out loud. And so I think some things you could, because then the question is like, what could he do apart from just being there and listening to me? Part of me wants you to kind of think about this question, what, and not, not the exact question that they asked, but instead think of him asking you, how can I best support you right now? And let's, let's go down that, that rabbit hole of like, what do we think would be helpful? Okay. Sometimes a hug, we already have one. Let's write that down. Why would a hug feel good? And, and you know, we could even be curious about why it's really uncomfortable or embarrassing to ask for in session or to say it out loud. Let's write about this. Okay. Then another thing that he could do to support you could maybe be uh, offer grounding techniques. I don't know if you have dissociation or eye contact is difficult or there are things that he could say to help you feel like you're more present, like counting the colors or um, offering silly putty or is there a blanket or if with with permission, could he like touch your back? Maybe there's something like that. Um, then, you know, 
obviously the you are right like being there and listening to you is important but there are some things that we can prompt as a therapist as therapists so it could be anything from like tell me where your brain went with that or let's let's work to identify a couple feelings right now or um you know again like the grounding techniques or you can just kind of depending on what you're struggling with, we might need different things. And so there are different tools and prompts that your therapist can offer. And if you're not sure, I I would ask your therapist, I would say, you know, a lot of times you ask me like how you can best accompany me <laughs> or support me rather. Um, and I don't really know what the options are. And you can come up with some together. And that's why I want you to kind of be curious about it on your own, because you might be surprised what you what comes up when you just start thinking about it on your own, writing about it when there's not any pressure to answer. I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but sometimes when I'm talking to my own therapist or even when I'm being interviewed for something, they'll ask me a question and I already had an answer in my head, but it like goes blank because it's like under pressure and I'm like, oh, and then I forget what I wanted to say and I make up a whole different answer, which is fine most of the time. But then sometimes after the interview, I'm like, fuck, I really wanted to say it this way or I wanted to mention that. And I think we all do that in therapy as well, right? It's like, Sometimes I go in there thinking, I really don't forget to say that. Don't forget to tell them about that. And then I fucking forget. So writing these things down, thinking about it outside of therapy when there's no pressure to have an answer could unearth some things maybe we didn't think about. And then on the other flip side, asking your therapist next time you see him, you know, what are the things that you could offer? All I can think of is like a hug and you being here and just like listening, you know, but could it be more active listening? Maybe, you know, uh, making better eye contact or uh-huh, uh-huh, or maybe asking another follow-up, you know, see what he thinks and ideas that he has, or, you know, through your own journaling, maybe you'll come up with some, a few more yourself. But I think that that will kind of help you uh, figure that out. But with my patients, a lot of times it's either grounding or distraction techniques. It's certain prompts that I can say or do to help them. It's resources I can have in my office, like everything from silly putty to a blanket to, you know, a essential oil, smelly rolly ball. Um, it can be any number of things like that. So, you know, talk it out and see what he thinks up and hopefully it will reveal itself and you can have some better support as you work through things. Cause that's really it. It's like all about all to benefit you feeling better and working through what you need to work through while feeling support it. Okay. We're almost there. You guys, three more questions. Let's move into question number nine. And that is, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Do attachment issues, man, two attachment ones this week. Hmm. Do attachment issues always stem from early childhood? Great question. I get intensely attached to older female authority figures. I have for a long time. I had a fairly quote unquote normal childhood. My mom was a stay at home parent. And I think she was there for me as much as she could when I was a child, but I can't be sure. I have seven siblings. Okay, that tells us a lot. However, when I was 10 or 11, I realized I couldn't trust her because I was gay and she would say disgusting things about gay people and was very unaccepting. Ooh, I'm sorry. A lot has happened since then and our relationship is damaged beyond repair, but I still long for a close relationship with her and for her to meet my needs, even though I know she can't and never will. I was curious about whether or not this could be the root of my attachment issues, even though it started when I was a preteen and not in early childhood. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for these podcasts. They have helped me more than you know. P.S. Do you have a P.O. box? I do have a P.O. box. If you would ever like to send me a letter, you can feel free to do so to Katie Morton at 1223 Wilshire Boulevard, box number 665 in Santa Monica, California, 90403. And those are uh, the actual P.O. box addresses in all the descriptions of my videos. So if you 
look or watching one of my videos, probably in this video here, you can scroll down to the bottom and you can find it. Um, and I check it every week. Okay. So let's get into this question. Um, when it comes to research, so I have kind of a differing opinion from people who have done research on attachment. And most people who have done the research and the kind of the pioneers of the field, like we're talking about the John Bowlby's of the world, they thought, they believe that attachment happens in the first year of our life, meaning our attachment is formed in the first 12 months, maybe I'll even give it like two years, let's say 24 months of our life. And therefore, that's the most important. We tell parents all the time how important it is that you, you know, come when your child cries and work to soothe them. And this can be really hard for children who have a lot of surgeries or complications when they're born or ones that are in incubators, you know, if they were like born premature, that can cause complications to this, as well as, you know, um, colicky babies who can't be soothed. There's a lot to do in that time frame that's very important. And it is key. And I'm not negating their research or saying that that's not true, because I do believe that is true. However, I don't believe attachment issues can only come from childhood. I do believe that wounds from our primary caregiver, I don't, I don't even know if I want to put a limit on it. I feel like I've had patients even in their 30s who recently have had like a big breakup or fight with like their mother, let's say, or father, or even grandma, like depends on who was taking care of them, right? Like their primary caregiver had a big like upset and it can lead to some of these feelings and issues where maybe then we start to worry that our partner or spouse is going to leave us, or we can start to feel a little more unsteady or unsure of our decision-making skills and our life as a whole. And, and a lot of kind of that anxious attachment or kind of issues that we can see coming out of attachment can be stirred up in us. And so I just want to talk about that because that's what I think happened here is I think from a young age, well, first of all, okay, there's let's I'm getting ahead of myself because you have seven siblings and I would argue and you guys can be you can disagree and I would love to hear your comments about this but I would argue that there is no way for one mother to emotionally and physically support all seven children when they need it I know friends who have you know two or three kids and they struggle to get that one-on-one -on -one time with their children now I also know parents work very hard and it's possible if the kids are spread out enough age-wise to give us that time we need but I just want to put that out there that it is also possible that even though you know mom was a stay-at-home parent and you had a quote-unquote normal childhood that emotionally speaking you didn't feel like she was there for you when you needed and you know maybe much of the support and love or soothing that you got was from another sibling or maybe from yourself because everybody was so busy doing their own things. I don't know. That's something that you, you know, would need to take the time to kind of consider honestly, you know, how, how emotionally supportive was your mom? Cause we talk about that a lot, but we don't talk about what that looks like. And emotional support looks like, you know, a mom holding you when you cry and patting your back and cleaning up a, a skinned knee or elbow and telling you it's going to be okay. Or talking about, you know, being bullied or hurt at school and and, and supporting you through it and talking to the teacher or something, you know, it can look like a lot of different things. And depending on what you needed, I don't know if your mom was really there. So I'm just putting that out there as something that you could explore and be curious about. But it could have been fine. And it could have been, you know, like you said, quote, unquote, normal, nothing there. But that's just something to consider. And then what I was getting at before that is like, when you were 10 to 11, you said you realized you couldn't trust her. Now that is a very young age to have that formative relationship that attachment relationship disrupted and so much so that it's like damaged beyond repair now and I believe that if it wasn't the early stuff meaning 
early childhood, not getting enough emotional support. Maybe it was that. And then compounding the fact that you knew you were gay and you knew that your mother wasn't going to support that. And I've talked to a lot of viewers and a lot of patients of mine who are part of the LGBTQ plus community and how that's, I I believe that that is a lot of the reasons why those of us in that community struggle with mental health issues more than those who aren't because of that, that feeling of anxiety and like we don't fit in or something's wrong or we're not going to be accepted. And I mean, the suicide rates are higher and mental health issues like anxiety, depression rates are higher. And so I just want to make you all aware of that and know that that is unfortunately, hopefully now as people like my age are having children and there's more acceptance and understanding in a lot of places throughout the world, not everywhere, but we're improving. Hopefully we see less and less of that, but there, there is a correlation between that and higher rates of, of mental illness. And so I could see that being, you know, very upsetting as well. And feeling like your family doesn't accept you that that's a big wound. That's a trauma. And so that would definitely lead to, I know this is a long winded answer and I'm sorry, but I just wanted to like thoroughly uh, address these issues. I believe that that could be what's leading you to get attached to older female authority figures because in a way your mom could not meet the needs that you had, right? Okay. So maybe she offered what she could. And this is, I've talked about this a lot, like in grieving what parents are able to give versus what we actually need, though they're not always the same. And so sometimes, especially in this case, you wanted acceptance, love and support from your mom and maybe extra emotional uh, connectedness and emotional support from her. And she couldn't give it to you. And even not just not give it, she's like refused to give some support about, you know, you being gay and and not accepting that. And so that wound, it's like, this is what we need from her and this is what she's able to give. And grieving that loss as well as recognizing the trauma of that loss is is going to be part of what you work on in therapy. And you could be trying to fill that void or that difference with these adult female authority figures. Um, And someone in the comments even said, sometimes I'll read read a book or watch a TV show or a movie and imagine that those people are like my parent or I feel very attached to them like they could be my best friend and that's very common it's because we're looking again it's so attractive to want to put somebody else in that void but I cannot encourage you all enough to do that work in therapy to find ways to soothe that younger you it might be writing letters to your younger self I know um, within the LGBTQ plus community the Trevor Project has great programs for kind of like big and um it's almost like, I always want to say big brother, big sister, because we had these big brother programs back home where it was like, you're paired up like a mentorship. They have a lot of mentorship options and things like that. And that could be really healing because you could actually, as an older person, help out someone that's younger and be there for them in the way that you wish someone could be there for you. And in essence, by doing that, we kind of work on that inner child work. I know it's sneaky, but hey, it works. So those are just some of the things that I think about that. And I hope that that helped at least shine some light into something that maybe, you know, I just hope to cleared up some of those things and helped you maybe better understand your situation. Because I do not believe that attachment issues only stem from childhood. I think that there are a lot of different times in our lives when we can be harmed by those relationships deteriorating or not being enough. Okay. Let's move into the final two questions. Question number 10. Now, these two, if you guys don't remember, are not ones that got the most thumbs ups. They were just randomly chosen. I just swung through the comments and picked one. So the first one is, hi, Katie. How can someone begin the process of moving away from restrictive disordered eating if the thought of giving up the control, which restriction gives it, feels terrifying? 
This is so common. Um, a lot of us feel like the restriction is a sense of control. <sighs> okay, I have a couple thoughts. So the first is, what I want you to do is I want you to journal about that belief that restriction seems to make you feel in control. How is that? What kind of control does it give you? Are there areas of your life that seem to spin out of control when that quote unquote control is happening? Can we be kind of balanced about this thought? Can we be curious about why, why restriction feels empowering? Does it feel empowering? A lot of my patients say it feels empowering. Um, let's just be curious. Can you dig into that? Because the truth about this like control that our eating disorder gives us is, is so, it's so false. <laughs> it, first of all, we can't control anything. And I think that it's that fact that makes us want to have these other things that we can control. And those of us who are more in the control freak realm, I'll even put myself in that I'm super organized and type A and like things to be as they are. Um, it can make those types of actions and behaviors very attractive because it can help us feel some sense of, of control, even if it is fake, right? So let's, I'm curious about that, right? About what it is about that restriction. Like how does that tie to control and, and is it true? And do we have facts to support it or not support it? And let's just be a little bit curious. Um, and then as far as beginning that process, what you really have to do is have a therapist or dietitian or preferably both if you can. I know that it can be financially limiting for people, but really it's great. Um, you can pick up the Intuitive Eating Workbook. I cannot recommend that enough. Um, I even have it linked to my Amazon store. You can go to amazon.com forward slash store forward slash Katie Morton. You can find it there. The Intuitive Eating Workbook is amazing. And what I really want you to do is we're going to slowly let go of this control in the form of meal plans and conversations about what comes up for us when we follow said meal plan. And if we're not able to follow the meal plan, why was that and what happened? We're going to, it's a trial and error. It's a slow ebb and flow. We're going to slowly push ourselves little by little into a less and less restrictive type of eating. And meal plans, even in and of themselves, can feel very controlled. And that's kind of a nice, uh, almost like a bridge to get us into the intuitive eating space where I'm wanting you to get. But it helps my patients sometimes start and get on that meal plan and we slowly go off the meal plan and it feels scary again, but we're able to do it. And it's kind of that bridge to get us over. And so those are really the ways that I would encourage you to start moving in that direction. And then also, again, like noticing what comes up for you. What is it when that urge to restrict comes back up, can we tap into a few of those emotions? Maybe can you identify two or three emotions and where we think those are coming from? It, it's kind of just managing because we know eating disorders are coping skills. When we pull them away, what's really happening is what's going to be revealed. And so I just want you to be aware enough and mindful enough to acknowledge that. And that's kind of hard. And I know there's gonna be times where we're like, I don't feel anything. Okay, well, then you know, then why do we think we want to, to restrict? If I, if I showed you a feelings chart, could you maybe identify two feelings you had today? Because we all feel something, even if we think we're all numbed out, there's something in there and I'm very curious about it. So anyways, pushing yourself to kind of process what comes up as we remove that eating disorder from our coping skill toolbox and put in something else that can be really helpful as we keep going. But again, 
you know, those meal plans are helpful. That's a wonderful safe bridge as we move in uh, towards intuitive eating. Intuitive eating, if you guys don't know, is when we eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full. And so it sounds, you know, it's it's the goal, I think, of, of eating disorder recovery. But it can be really scary and really overwhelming at first. And that's why we kind of do it one little step at a time, one meal at a time, one thought at a time. We're going to be aware and process through and show ourselves a little extra compassion and support as we as we work through it. Okay, final question. Question number 11 says, hi, Katie, odd question, but I was in counseling for a little bit because of my depression. For some reason, every time my counselor used my name, I had an instant panic and a rush of anxiety. My heart started beating even faster etc. What is that all about? Is it normal? And now, so there was a comment below this and I had to agree. It's sometimes I love it because it's like, you guys like read my mind. You're so amazing. So insightful. But the person in the comment said it was, they thought it was dissociation for them. And that was what I thought immediately too, because I have to agree with that. When we are kind of spaced out or feeling overwhelmed, right? Our anxiety is already at an all time high. If someone said our name, sometimes that can ground us and rip us back into, pull us uncomfortably so back into our body and our present situation that was so uncomfortable that we had to dissociate. So when we're pulled back, we can feel really uncomfortable and we can hate it. And so that rush of anxiety and that panic could be what you were trying to avoid with your dissociation. And by them calling your name or saying your name, it brought you back in. And so I would, that's my first hypothesis. But my second one is that there's something about saying someone's name out loud to them, addressing them in the midst of something that can be overwhelming, that can feel kind of abrasive or a little bit too intense. And that could be what is causing the anxiety or we can feel a little too seen when we're not really comfortable being seen, if that makes sense. And so anyways, I just kind of want, you'll have to figure out what it is for you. And it might differ from session to session. One session, it might be dissociation. The other session, it might just be feeling called out, like feeling too seen, too vulnerable that we just kind of want to shut back in. Um, But that could be causing that rush of panic. Um, But yeah, and it was, I also love the fact that other people said me too, me too, because this person thought this was an odd question. And I just want to remind you all that we always think that what we're going through is something completely unique and no one will understand. And we're super weird. And I'm just here to tell you that you're not and that you're not alone. A lot of people are going through something similar. And many times from people in our community, I've heard, I just didn't know how to put words to it, but this person did such a great job. And so I hope that question gets answered. And that's what's really, really cool, not only about the channel over these years, but this podcast has been really great for me to see where you guys are at, what you're going through, and what you maybe think is weird that we know now through our community is not at all. And so thank you all for sending in your questions and your comments. Uh, Again, keep a lookout next Monday. It will post asking for your questions at 6 a.m. I have it scheduled Pacific Standard Time. Pop your questions into those comments. Again, when you comment on a question, it's to follow up or an additional question regarding that question. That's why I pull those in because it's kind of like, yeah, this, but but what about that? You know, and it's very, very similar in line with that question. And that's how to best get your questions answered. I hope that was helpful. I love you all. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.